Section 39 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 39 chapter eighteen part two the trial and punishment of an archbishop might have proved a troublesome and dangerous undertaking had henry proceeded regularly and allowed time for an opposition to form itself against that unusual measure the celerity of the execution alone could here render it safe and prudent Finding that Sir William Gascoigne, the Chief Justice, made some scruple of acting on this occasion, he appointed Sir William Fulthorpe for judge, who, without any indictment, trial, or defence, pronounced sentence of death upon the prelate, which was presently executed. This was the first instance in England of a capital punishment inflicted on a bishop, whence the clergy of that rank might learn that their crimes more than those of lays were not to pass with impunity the earl of nottingham was condemned and executed in the same summary manner but though many other persons of condition such as lord falkenberg sir ralph hastings sir john colville no others seem to have fallen victims to henry's severity the earl of northumberland on receiving this intelligence fled into scotland together with lord bardolph and the king without opposition reduced all the castles and fortresses belonging to these noblemen he thence turned his arms against glendower over whom his son the prince of wales had attained some advantages but that enemy more troublesome than dangerous still found means of defending himself in his fastness and of eluding though not resisting all the force of england in a subsequent season the earl of northumberland and lord bardolph impatient of their exile entered the north in hopes of raising the people to arms but found the country in such a posture as rendered all their attempts unsuccessful sir thomas rokesby sheriff of yorkshire levied some forces attacked the invaders at bramham and gained a victory in which both northumberland and bardolph were slain this prosperous event joined to the death of glendower which happened soon after freed henry from all his domestic enemies and this prince who had mounted the throne by such unjustifiable means and held it by such an exceptionable title had yet by his valour prudence and address accustomed the people to the yoke and had obtained a greater ascendant over his haughty barons than the law alone not supported by these active qualities was ever able to confer about the same time fortune gave henry an advantage over that neighbour who by his situation was most enabled to disturb his government robert the third king of scots was a prince though of slender capacity extremely innocent and inoffensive in his conduct but scotland 
at that time was still less fitted than england for cherishing or even enduring sovereigns of that character the duke of albany robert's brother a prince of more abilities at least of a more boisterous and violent disposition had assumed the government of the state and not satisfied with present authority he entertained the criminal purpose of extirpating his brother's children and of acquiring the crown to his own family he threw in prison david his eldest nephew who there perished by hunger james alone the younger brother of david stood between that tyrant and the throne and king robert sensible of his son's danger embarked him on board a ship with a view of sending him to france and entrusting him to the protection of that friendly power unfortunately the vessel was taken by the english prince james a boy of about nine years of age was carried to london and though there subsisted at that time a truce between the kingdoms henry refused to restore the young prince to his liberty robert worn out with cares and infirmities was unable to bear the shock of this last misfortune and he soon after died leaving the government in the hands of the duke of albany henry was now more sensible than ever of the importance of the acquisition which he had made while he retained such a pledge he was sure of keeping the duke of albany in dependence or if offended he could easily by restoring the true heir take ample revenge upon the usurper but though the king by detaining james in the english court had shown himself somewhat deficient in generosity he made ample amends by giving that prince an excellent education which afterwards qualified him when he mounted the throne to reform in some measure the rude and barbarous manners of his native country the hostile dispositions which of late had prevailed between france and england were restrained during the greater part of this reign from appearing in action the jealousies and civil commotions with which both nations were disturbed kept each of them from taking advantage of the unhappy situation of its neighbour but as the abilities and good fortune of henry had sooner been able to compose the english factions this prince began in the latter part of his reign to look abroad and to foment the animosities between the families of burgundy and orleans by which the government of france was during that period so much distracted he knew that one great source of the national discontent against his predecessor was the inactivity of his reign and he hoped by giving a new direction to the restless and unquiet spirits of his people to prevent their breaking out in domestic wars and disorders that he might unite policy with force he first entered into a treaty with the duke of burgundy and sent that prince a small body of troops which supported him against his enemies soon after he hearkened to more advantageous proposals made him by the duke of orleans and dispatched a greater body to support that party but the leaders of the opposite factions having made a temporary accommodation the interests of the english were sacrificed and this effort of henry proved in the issue entirely vain and fruitless 
the declining state of his health and the shortness of his reign prevented him from renewing the attempt which his more fortunate son carried to so great a length against the french monarchy such were the military and foreign transactions of this reign the civil and parliamentary are somewhat more memorable and more worthy of our attention during the last two reigns the elections of the commons had appeared a circumstance of government not to be neglected and richard was even accused of using unwarrantable methods for procuring to his partisans a seat in that house this practice formed one considerable article of charge against him in his deposition yet henry scrupled not to tread in his footsteps and to encourage the same abuses in elections laws were enacted against such undue influence and even a sheriff was punished for an iniquitous return which he had made but laws were commonly at that time very ill executed and the liberties of the people such as they were stood on a surer basis than on laws and parliamentary elections though the house of commons was little able to withstand the violent currents which perpetually ran between the monarchy and the aristocracy and though that house might easily be brought at a particular time to make the most unwarrantable concessions to either the general institutions of the state still remained invariable the interests of the several members continued on the same footing the sword was in the hands of the subject and the government though thrown into temporary disorder soon settled itself on its ancient foundations during the greater part of this reign the king was obliged to court popularity and the house of commons sensible of their own importance began to assume powers which had not usually been exercised by their predecessors in the first year of henry they procured a law that no judge in concurring with any iniquitous measure should be excused by pleading the orders of the king or even the danger of his own life from the menaces of the sovereign in the second year they insisted on maintaining the practice of not granting any supply before they received an answer to their petitions which was a tacit manner of bargaining with the prince in the fifth year they desired the king to remove from his household four persons who had displeased them among whom was his own confessor and henry though he told them that he knew of no offence which these men had committed yet in order to gratify them complied with their request in the sixth year they voted the king supplies but appointed treasurers of their own to see the money dispersed for the purposes intended and required them to deliver in their accounts to the house in the eighth year they proposed for the regulation of the government and household thirty important articles which were all agreed to and they even obliged all the members of council all the judges and all the officers of the household to swear the observance of them the abridger of the records remarks the unusual liberties taken by the speaker and the house during this period but the great authority of the commons was but a temporary advantage arising from the present situation in a subsequent parliament 
when the speaker made his customary application to the throne for liberty of speech the king having now overcome all his domestic difficulties plainly told him that he would have no novelties introduced and would enjoy his prerogatives but on the whole the limitations of the government seem to have been more sensibly felt and more carefully maintained by henry than any of his predecessors during this reign when the house of commons were at any time brought to make unwary concessions to the crown they also showed their freedom by a speedy retraction of them henry though he entertained a perpetual and well-grounded jealousy of the family of mortimer allowed not their name to be once mentioned in parliament and as none of the rebels had ventured to declare the earl of marsh king he never attempted to procure what would not have been refused him an express declaration against the claim of that nobleman because he knew that such a declaration in the present circumstances would have no authority and would only serve to revive the memory of mortimer's title in the minds of the people he proceeded in his purpose after a more artful and covert manner he procured a settlement of the crown on himself and his heirs male thereby tacitly excluding the females and transferring the salic law into the english government he thought that though the house of plantagenet had first derived their title from a female this was a remote event unknown to the generality of the people and if he could once accustom them to the practice of excluding women the title of the earl of marsh would gradually be forgotten and neglected by them but he was very unfortunate in this attempt during the long contests with france the injustice of the salic law had been so much exclaimed against by the nation that a contrary principle had taken deep root in the minds of men and it was now become impossible to eradicate it the same house of commons therefore in a subsequent session apprehensive that they had overturned the foundations of the english government and that they had opened the door to more civil wars than might ensue even from the irregular elevation of the house of lancaster applied with such earnestness for a new settlement of the crown that henry yielded to their request and agreed to the succession of the princesses of his family a certain proof that nobody was in his heart satisfied with the king's title to the crown or knew on what principle to rest it but though the commons during this reign showed a laudable zeal for liberty in their transactions with the crown their efforts against the church were still more extraordinary and seemed to anticipate very much the spirit which became so general in little more than a century afterwards i know that the credit of these passages rests entirely on one ancient historian but that historian was contemporary was a clergyman and it was contrary to the interests of his order to preserve the memory of such transactions much more to forge precedents which posterity might some time be tempted to imitate this is a truth so evident that the most likely way of accounting for the silence of the records on this head is by supposing that the authority of some churchmen 
was so great as to procure a razure with regard to these circumstances which the indiscretion of one of that order has happily preserved to us in the sixth of henry the commons who had been required to grant supplies proposed in plain terms to the king that he should seize all the temporalities of the church and employ them as a perpetual fund to serve the exigencies of the state they insisted that the clergy possessed a third of the lands of the kingdom that they contributed nothing to the public burdens and that their riches tended only to disqualify them from performing their ministerial functions with proper zeal and attention when this address was presented the archbishop of canterbury who then attended the king objected that the clergy though they went not in person to the war sent their vassals and tenants in all cases of necessity while at the same time they themselves who stayed at home were employed night and day in offering up their prayers for the happiness and prosperity of the state the speaker smiled and answered without reserve that he thought the prayers of the church but a very slender supply the archbishop however prevailed in the dispute the king discouraged the application of the commons and the lords rejected the bill which the lower house had framed for stripping the church of her revenues the commons were not discouraged by this repulse in the eleventh of the king they returned to the charge with more zeal than before they made a calculation of all the ecclesiastical revenues which by their account amounted to four hundred and eighty five thousand marks a year and contained eighteen thousand four hundred ploughs of land they proposed to divide this property among fifteen new earls one thousand five hundred knights six thousand esquires and a hundred hospitals besides twenty thousand pounds a year which the king might take for his own use and they insisted that the clerical functions would be better performed than at present by fifteen thousand parish priests paid at the rate of seven marks apiece of yearly stipend this application was accompanied with an address for mitigating the statutes enacted against the lollards which shows from what source the address came the king gave the commons a severe reply and further to satisfy the church and to prove that he was quite in earnest he ordered a lollard to be burned before the dissolution of the parliament we have now related almost all the memorable transactions of this reign which was busy and active but produced few events that deserve to be transmitted to posterity the king was so much employed in defending his crown which he had obtained by unwarrantable means and possessed by a bad title that he had little leisure to look abroad or perform any action which might redound to the honour and advantage of the nation his health declined some months before his death he was subject to fits which bereaved him for the time of his senses and though he was yet in the flower of his age his end was visibly approaching 
he expired at westminster in the forty-sixth year of his age and the thirteenth of his reign the great popularity which henry enjoyed before he attained the crown and which had so much aided him in the acquisition of it was entirely lost many years before the end of his reign and he governed his people more by terror than by affection more by his own policy than by their sense of duty or allegiance when men came to reflect in cold blood on the crimes which had led him to the throne the rebellion against his prince the deposition of a lawful king guilty sometimes perhaps of oppression but more frequently of indiscretion the exclusion of the true heir the murder of his sovereign and near relation these were such enormities as drew on him the hatred of his subjects sanctified all the rebellions against him and made the executions though not remarkably severe which he found necessary for the maintenance of his authority appear cruel as well as iniquitous to the people yet without pretending to apologize for these crimes which must ever be held in detestation it may be remarked that he was insensibly led into this blamable conduct by a train of incidents which few men possess virtue enough to withstand the injustice with which his predecessor had treated him in first condemning him to banishment then despoiling him of his patrimony made him naturally think of revenge and of recovering his lost rights the headlong zeal of the people hurried him into the throne the care of his own security as well as his ambition made him a usurper and the steps have always been so few between the prisons of princes and their graves that we need not wonder that richard's fate was no exception to the general rule all these considerations make henry's situation if he retained any sense of virtue much to be lamented and the inquietude with which he possessed his envied greatness and the remorses by which it is said he was continually haunted render him an object of our pity even when seated upon the throne but it must be owned that his prudence and vigilance and foresight in maintaining his power were admirable his command of temper remarkable his courage both military and political without blemish and he possessed many qualities which fitted him for his high station and which rendered his usurpation of it though pernicious in after times rather salutary during his own reign to the english nation henry was twice married by his first wife mary de bohun daughter and co-heir of the earl of hereford he had four sons henry his successor in the throne thomas the duke of clarence john duke of bedford and humphrey duke of gloucester and two daughters blanche and philippa the former married to the duke of bavaria the latter to the king of denmark his second wife jane whom he married after he was king and who was daughter of the king of navarre and widow of the duke of brittany brought him no issue by an act of the fifth of this reign 
it is made felony to cut out any person's tongue or put out his eyes crimes which the act says were very frequent this savage spirit of revenge denotes a barbarous people though perhaps it was increased by the prevailing factions and civil commotions commerce was very little understood in this reign as in all the preceding in particular a great jealousy prevailed against merchant strangers and many restraints were by law imposed upon them namely that they should lay out in english manufactures or commodities all the money acquired by the sale of their goods that they should not buy or sell with one another and that all their goods should be disposed of three months after importation this last clause was found so inconvenient that it was soon after repealed by parliament it appears that the expense of this king's household amounted to the yearly sum of nineteen thousand five hundred pounds money of that age guicciardin tells us that the flemings in this century learned from italy all the refinements in arts which they taught the rest of europe the progress however of the arts was still very slow and backward in england End of section thirty nine chapter eighteen part two